Hi, I'm Jill Sylvester, licensed mental health counselor and author of the self-help book, Trust Your Intuition, 100 Ways to Transform Anxiety and Depression for Stronger Mental Health, and the young adult self-help fiction novels, The Land of Blue and Awakening, book one in the Devon series, book two out in the next few months. Each of my books deals with the themes of how to achieve excellent mental health and how to deepen your intuition, because for me, it all comes down to listening to and trusting your own inner voice in order to live your very best life. Hi, and welcome to this week's podcast. The topic for uh, today's discussion is going to be the pathology of normal childhood. So we're going to talk about kids and diagnosis. Before I get into that, I want to focus on the gratitude for this week. And this week, I am so happy to read this article, Animal Welfare Advocates, who said that they were worried that when um, offices reopened and social life began returning to normal, that new pet owners who were bored and isolated and adopted dogs last year, they were worried that pet owners would cast aside their dogs because I guess historically that's typically what people do, like kids who had outgrown their teddy bears. And despite, quote-unquote, some alarmist news reports, the story is so far much happier than that. Shelter data and interviews with animal welfare experts point to a confirmed shift in pet ownership in the U.S. as people bonded with their new animal companions during an incredibly stressful period. Giving up their pets borders on the unthinkable for many. So I was so happy to read that, and I wanted to include it in, in, um, in today's discussion because... If you follow my Instagram, you know I'm obsessed with my bulldog. And uh, my most recent post as of this recording was uh, because it is still Mental Health Awareness Month that pet therapy is the best because it is. When you have a pet and you just take comfort in that pet and that quiet, unconditional love and that connection you have with your animal, your cat, your bird, your snake, or whatever it is that you have, uh, it's a uh, snake might be pushing it, but it's amazing. It's amazing just what it can do for your blood pressure and check out all the research on just what having an animal can do for you. So if you have one, celebrate it, you know, revel in it. I know you do. And if you don't, um, you know, maybe that's something to think about for you or your child. So speaking of children, um, there's another article that I read this week that prompted me to focus on today's discussion about kids and the diagnosis they receive um, at an early age that often can cause not the best results. And this has been a passion of mine. If you've worked with me, um, you know my position on this for the most part. I am not against medication. I want to be clear on that. There is obviously a place for modern medicine. It can do amazing things, and when you need it, you take it. But I do have pretty strong views on diagnosing children at an early age for, you know, sometimes just the behavior they have on just being themselves and their constitution and sometimes, you know, what, what that can cause when we diagnose them too early or ever. And, uh, you know, I wanted to give some thoughts on that this week. So I do want to share part of this article um, from Crispin Sartwell that I read in the Wall Street Journal. And he said that according to a 2019 study in the Journal, in the journal of Pediatrics, some 30% of American adolescents with fair or poor physical health have been diagnosed with anxiety, between 13% and 20% with behavior disorders, and almost 15% with mood disorders. The study finds that the reported prevalence of these disorders doubled over the previous decade. 
According to a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study, the number of children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in 1999 was 7.6%. And in 2018, it rose to 12.9%. That's an almost 70% increase in 20 years. So the apparent decline in childhood mental health is itself depressing, I suspect, however, that one of the factors driving it is increased diagnosis due precisely to the increasing prevalence of mental health services. It is one thing to detect diseases with well-established biological bases. Early detection of cancer has saved many lives. It is quite another to detect diseases on the basis of a rough group of ill-defined symptoms. When the DSM-5, the Standard Manual for Psychiatric Diagnosis, characterizes ADHD, it does so in a way that doesn't neatly separate any population into those who have it and those who don't. It specifies that a child with ADHD displays six or more symptoms of inattention. Such a child, for instance, may be easily distracted. Psychologists don't, one might remark, diagnose teachers and curriculums as insufficiently interesting to maintain attention. Before you treat a child with powerful stimulants, you might ask whether education would give you six varieties of inattention too. The grab bag of supposed symptoms of the disease amounts to a description of the average boy's behavior in the average classroom before the era of school psychology often fidgets or squirms, often leaves seat, often runs about, often talks excessively. These aren't symptoms of an illness. They are symptoms of being a normal human child. So schools themselves may not prescribe medication and often refer, but they often encourage its use and direct parents to prescribing physicians. The diagnosis provided and medications mobilized by child psychology are devoted largely to getting students to sit quietly and still, goals formally pursued by the cane or the knuckle wrap. It's a new form of school discipline, one that leaves parents certain that their children are diseased and that quickly leads the children to the same conclusion about themselves. The line drawn by the DSM-5 between normal or reasonable worry and diagnosable anxiety or between appropriate sadness and depression is just as blurry. So I wanted to focus on this article. Uh, and one caveat I want to say is the psychologists that I've worked with and those that are my friends are not of this cloth actually at all and they're fantastic um it's it's more of an, and actually i don't want to focus on psychologists that's the article gears toward that more from a school perspective uh, and that's not my bent okay so i just want to be clear on that i want to talk about kids and when we diagnose them again too early and when we tend to diagnose them at all because it puts them in this box and it can often be this this crutch so I want to tweak the article a little for for my purposes today so that I can talk a little bit to parents and educators who have kids that you know don't sit still that squirm and all of that and focus on how we might get a strategy for instead focusing on the pathology of the child focus on what is right with the child so as always we unpack the uh the the focus for today or again as always we unpack it into steps and strategies so the first thing I would say is if you have a child whether this person is in your classroom or in your home that is let's say quote-unquote difficult and you want to get them to focus better or you want to get them to calm down and things like that you know the first thing I want to ask is who is your child that's the first question I want you to think about who are they like in their natural state who are they what is their nature, their constitution? 
you know, who, who are they? Just totally bare, just being themselves. And when you focus on that and quieting the noise of how they need to sit still in the classroom or they need to sit still when you're, you know, at somebody's house or, you know, when you go to the grocery store, like focus on like worrying less about everybody else. Just focus on the child. Who are they? What kind of energy do they have? Are they bigger than the room? Are they loud and really hyper? Do they have tons of energy and they just, you know, it's really hard for them to, you know, hard for you to get them to quiet down or to, or to do less fidgeting and all of that? Who, who are they? So when you ask yourself that, you're looking at the child and how they came into this world, how they entered right out of the gate. Usually that's who they are. And so when we start to enter the social phase and we start to, you know, have to go out into the world, that's when things can become often tough as parents and educators to, to deal with. And so we look for ways to get the child to conform. And it's something to, to really think about because think about the message that we're often sending to a child about who they are at their core. So if they're super hyper, and the one example I think of is Giselle Bündchen. I remember reading something on her years ago, and she said like she was totally off the wall, hyper, really, really active, couldn't sit still. And she said that if she had grown up in this country, that they would have put her on stimulants. And instead, in Brazil, which I believe is where she's from, they didn't deal with that. You know, that's, that's not how she was raised. And she was just kind of allowed to be who she was, which she said was really hyper hard for her to sit still. And I think of kids like that I've known through my pac- practice through the years. And I think of them as bigger than the room, you know, energy that's bigger than the room. I, I, I would just know that about a kid when they come in and think, you know, they're meant to do something that's bigger than the room, bigger than this, bigger than, you know, that you can just see it in them. They just have all this stuff. And so I ask you to think about who is your child, because if they have that kind of energy that's really, really intense and really, really large, what could they be doing with that kind of power that could light up New York City? How are we talking to them about all this energy they have and what they might want to do with it? And when you start to have conversations with your child at a very young age about all this energy that God gave them, the universe gave them, and how they just have it, what do they want to do with it? It's kind of like sky's the limit. They've got this whole canvas to paint, their whole life in front of them. What are we doing with that energy? And that is dealing with the situation as it is. As Byron Katie you know, talks about, she likes to deal in reality. And, and what is happening in the moment. And I believe that the first strategy in dealing with your child, if you're trying to get them to conform, which we'll talk about in step two, or to fit into a system because it's really hard, or to do the right thing, quote unquote, and just, you know, kind of change their nature, is that we're missing the point of honoring who they are. Now, that doesn't mean you give your kid the power. That doesn't mean that you let them walk all over you, run all over you, and treat you like a doormat, and be loud and obnoxious when they're not supposed to be loud and obnoxious. That's not what I'm saying. But if we start with that first step of who they are, and you bear everything back, and you get everybody else and their their opinions and beliefs out of of your head, and you just focus on your child, you say, who are you? And focus on who they are, because no one knows their child better than their mom and dad. 
So when you ask yourself who your child is, that's when you can start to create that roadmap of how to raise that child with all of their quirks and idiosyncrasies and all the behavior traits that might not be, you know, completely stellar and start to work with that energy in shaping and molding it into what they can become. And this leads us to step two. So I think about some of the kids I've treated in my practice um, over the last 13 years of kids who did not fit in the system. And I'll take, you know, a couple different extremes. I'll take kids who were, you know, just really tough to contain. They were bored out of their minds. Smart kids, really, really smart kids, but didn't do well in school per se. And they had intelligence of a different nature. And they would just have a really tough time. And it's heartbreaking. Their families would have a difficult time. But yet it was years and years and years of trying to fit this child to conform into a system. And as soon as you take your child out of that system is when they thrive. And I'll give you the opposite end of the extreme. Instead of, you know, kids who were just bouncing off the walls and really, you know, just difficult to contain and didn't do well and, and all of that, you know, in terms of, like, fitting the mold with, with school and grades, is the kid who falls under the radar but has tremendous anxiety when they walk into a school and they're more empathic, they're more sensitive. And so every day it would be a grind to even go and, and just have a really hard time. But yet when the parents chose to homeschool them, they were self-motivated enough to do what they needed to do to graduate and go on to do incredible side hustles that ended up being their primary lucrative job. So I give you those two examples because I've seen it so many times, and if you're a therapist listening to this podcast, you, you, you know it too. It's, it's, there's so many different ways of kids and how they learn and how they do best. And I'm, and I'm not knocking the system per se because there's many kids who fit into a school system and who go and they do that and, and that works for them and it works. But it's also outdated for a lot of these kids energetically that are coming in with, I believe, a soul contract and a mission to get us to wake up to the system that's no longer serving them. I mean, look at the look at the the stats that I just read about the rise in you know the mental health issues and ADHD, the rise in all that. Like, is it really the kids or is it us? Is it the system that's just become no longer serving these type of kids and forcing us to be able to look at other ways and means? of helping these kids to become all they can be. But if we continue on this path of trying to get them to conform to a system and do what we have to do to make them fit and sit in the classroom, how we stifle them, how we are doing it maybe for the wrong reasons so that it's easier for the teacher, it's easier for us, it's easier for you know the school system and you know people less talking, oh, that kid's a pain in the ass kind of thing, right? It's it's the way to... to maybe avoid some of the things that are really happening, which is what this kid is here to tell us. And if we parent and educate these kids from a standpoint of what is going right and all the things that we're doing well and all the things they're doing well, rather, and how to get them to understand that their energy is serving them for something later in their life that they're here to do, what a different message that we send to children and, and help them to kind of honor who they are embrace who they are, and then move forward in that, owning who they are, as opposed to, you know, hiding it or feeling ashamed or feeling like, yeah, I have ADHD. It's like, well, well who doesn't? I mean, if you're a mom with even one child, right, you, you, we're, we're all over the place. We're, we've got our work to do. We've got our kids. There's so many things to do in the course of a day. 
And even if you're not a parent, I'm sure that's kind of how your brain has become too with all the technology that we have in our face and all the things that are calling our attention all the time. So I'm not minimizing a true diagnosis, but what I am saying is that we can be ADHD-ish. We can be on the spectrum-ish. We can be anxious-ish without a true clinical having to lock somebody in a box like this is like a death sentence and a life sentence and and make kids kind of feel like there's something wrong with them because I have found that when we do that that's what can contribute to the low self-esteem that can often develop versus a kid saying yeah I got a ton of energy and I can't sit still okay that's that's life we all have stuff that's you know doesn't fit in every single place we go And the more that we own and accept that about ourselves, the more we can be at peace. So I'm not really sure that labeling kids is such a good thing to do. I try to stay away from labels in my practice, but I also know sometimes, obviously, families want them. And I find that kids, mostly in the young adult phase or the older adolescent phase, more want a diagnosis, but out of validation. And it's, it's usually what people aren't saying, right? So underneath, I find that when somebody is looking for a diagnosis, which I will give them if they're asking for it, is really that they want to be validated that maybe there's something about themselves that doesn't feel right. And I feel like when we can steer the conversation to why that is and, and what would that mean if we were to own and accept that diagnosis and what are they going to do with it and how do we look at the positives of it because we're all made unique There's reasons we are the way we are, whatever those little quirks and idiosyncrasies may be, those character traits that maybe some people find difficult or annoying. You know, maybe they're geared to bring you in this direction, away from the masses, to do something more in the quiet, or to contribute to entertainment, or to, you know, to to a plethora of, of not just jobs and careers, but a way of life. So accepting who we are, accepting who our children are, I think is really important. And that leads me to the last step. Kids are so intuitive. Ask them. Involve them on what they feel they need for themselves. You know, tune in yourself as a parent and and sit with that, with you alone, with your angels, your highest guides, with God, to sit down and say, what does my child need? You know, what do you really feel is best for your child? Not what someone else is telling you, might be good for your child because they don't live with you. They don't, they don't know your child like you do. What do you feel is best for your child when you are sitting alone and you, with yourself and you think about the soul contract that you have with your child and what they're here to teach you and what they're here to teach the world and how they're here to contribute? What do you think the message is in that? And asking your children, you know, what, what do they feel is intuitively best for them? What is their truth and what do they feel they need? What would make them feel happy? And when you ask those questions, you can start to help your child on this trajectory of a strong self-esteem by accepting the qualities in themselves that might not be fitting in with everybody else. The sooner we do that, the sooner we're going to have these percentages of these mental health statistics go in the other direction. We'll be right back. Calling all parents and teachers. Planting the Seeds is a line of self-help tools based on therapeutic models of self-esteem building for children both at home and in the classroom. Created by a licensed mental health counselor, Planting the Seeds physical and digital cards and conversation starter tools are designed to encourage meaningful conversations between kids and their caregivers. They're perfect for morning and afternoon meetings for teachers in the classroom or for starting the day at home during breakfast. 
to get your kids' thoughts moving in the right direction. For more information, please visit jillsylvester.com. Plant the seeds today for a strong and healthy tomorrow. Okay, themes this week that came up. So, um, overwhelm, that was, that was a big one the past couple weeks. And the fear of trying new things because we get, you know, shut down with paralysis by analysis kind of thing. So, um, one of the strategies that I, I gave a few different people over these past couple weeks is really just dropping an anchor in the moment. So trying not to get ahead of yourself because gremlins love that. Anxiety loves that. It's rooted in the what ifs, you know, the what ifs of uncertainty and doubt. So staying in the moment, dropping an anchor and thinking, what is the next best step for me? So if you are a college kid listening to this and you are freaking out about the major you feel you're going to declare because you have to live the rest of your life by this major, take a breath and then own the fact that whatever you decide right now, you always have the opportunity to change your mind. My undergrad was business management and finance. I had a dual concentration in the business world. That's what I did in my early life. Later, I went on for my master's in counseling. Totally different end of the spectrum. So if you declare something, you can change your mind always when you're in college and even later in life. If you're taking electives when you're young and it lights you up and you think, hmm, this, this might be something for me, then pay attention to that. The universe will bring you back around. And if you're a person struggling with a big shift in your life or things have come up with transition, that was was a lot of the theme with, with shifts and things, and you just feel overwhelmed, drop an anchor. Try to just stay in the 24 hours that you are in right now and think, what is the next best step for me to make? Not two weeks from now, not six months from now, not what the world's gonna look like, you know, just right now. What is the next best step that I can take? Sometimes it's just, going in the kitchen and getting something to eat because you might have low blood sugar and your mind's going wild and you haven't had enough protein or you're just running on sugar and the anxiety's, you know, going off on a tangent in your mind. Like, that might be your next best step. Keep it simple. Drop an anchor and then choice by choice so that you can stand in the moment of what is the next best thing for me. I received an email with a question about what is the difference between impulse and intuition. And we could open up many branches to that conversation. But what I, what I think the email what, was referring to was more about how sometimes intuition can be, it, it can feel very impulsive. Um, and that's true. And I think that in terms of using your intuition, it often can be having to just act on something that you know is true for yourself. It can often feel impulsive until you're validated on the other end. I can't tell you how many cases I called back in the day where I would feel like, oh my God, I'm going to look like a complete crazy person if I call and say I had this dream about this case and this person and blah, blah, blah. You know, your mind goes and goes and goes. Quite impulsive by definition, but also intuitive. And it wasn't until I would be validated on the other side from a conversation with a, with a, a police officer or a detective saying, you know, Yes, that's, you know, like you couldn't have possibly known that kind of a thing, which has nothing to do with me, by the way, and everything to do with just being a channel coming from that other place, which I also believe is more intuitive than impulsive, okay? So I use that example because intuition can feel very impulsive. It can. Um, But if you work with your intuition, you know that it has nothing to do with you. And to me, that's the biggest difference. 
sometimes when we're impulsive, it's because our ego is driving the bus. We have to do something. We have to say something. We have, and then we feel bad about it. When we're intuitive and we're acting on our intuition, it's bigger than us. It's our little voice being used from the universe to do something in the name of service. It's humbling. It really has nothing to do with us. And when you act on something, saying something to a person, like you're feeling a message from something that you feel like you need to make a phone call or a text to somebody or you need to offer something to somebody because it feels like you're getting it from somewhere else, then that's intuitive. So it is a fine line. It can feel quite impulsive. But usually for me, the difference is it's got nothing to do with us. It's something bigger. And we're just playing a very small role in serving the greater good. And the last theme that came up this week, or the one that we're going to focus on for today, is sleep. Now, I know there's a clip, an eclipse this week, so I think that has affected a lot of people's sleep. Um, I'm recording this Tuesday, and yesterday, I, with the 11 clients I spoke to yesterday, the sleep was a huge conversation. So I think the, the eclipse is affecting a lot of people's sleep, kids included. So for that, I will say... Sleep hygiene is crucial, and this is one of the strategies and tips I used in um, Trust Your Intuition, my, my self-help book, because it is so important to get sleep, and when we don't, sometimes we freak out. Don't freak out, because it'll come. It's just a phase, right? This too shall pass, but it's very important to have good sleep hygiene, and so good sleep hygiene means that we have a routine at the end of the day that signals to our body that we're winding down, that where, you know, I used to say books, bath, bed to my to my kids. We would take, you know, we would take a bath, we would read books, and then we'd go to sleep. So there's some routine that you're having at the end of the night, whether it's just getting in your pajamas and then you get, a, you know, a cup of tea or you watch your favorite shows or you light a fire or you take a bath, but something that says, here we go, we're winding it down, and then you stick to it. So you don't jump on your phone or your computer. You shut down your work 30 minutes at least before bed. And with your kids, maybe some warm milk and honey. That's always really good. Um, with the tryptophan and winding them down or a cup of chamomile tea or putting some lavender on the soles of your feet. But something to your body that signals winding down time. And good sleep is good mental health. Thanks for listening. If you like today's podcast, please hit subscribe and share with your people. And please check out my books and products at www jillsylvester.com where you can sign up for my weekly blog to receive tips and strategies to deepen your intuition and live your very best life. Thanks for listening.